0: Hello, hello everyone. Welcome back to the One Day at a Time podcast hosted by me, Valerie Fong. If this is your first time tuning into the podcast, One Day at a Time is all about unpacking those high-low, nuanced and hard to articulate feelings of growing up taking into account things like intersectionality and pop culture influence as well as some sillier thoughts that keep me up at night. (laughs) So please follow, rate, and review if you enjoy my stories and I am so grateful you're here with me today. So lately I've been thinking a lot about the gendered critiques floating around TikTok right now. Topics like being that girl, a pick-me-girl, and pretty privilege paired with some negative experiences that I've recently had as a conventionally attractive feminine girl have had my head turning about themes of femininity, girlhood, and what popular media has conditioned us to think about conventionally attractive hyper-feminine women and the internalized misogyny of some of the topics being discussed online right now. Femininity and beauty are independent of each other, but in this episode specifically, I'm looking at it as they are portrayed side by side because they often are and there are certain ideas that are perpetuated about them as they relate with one another. And in my studying up for this episode, I've also been thinking a lot about how In our society, norms dictate that a woman's worth is closely tied to her appearance. There is a certain power, or lack thereof, that certain appearances grant. And all of this, of course, operates under the umbrella of what the male gaze deems appropriate. There are also contradictions that women in particular face when it comes to ideas of beauty and femininity. On this podcast, I feel like I talk a lot about paradoxes. For example, the unique, somewhat paradoxal relationship that Asian and Asian American kids have with their food and body image. Give a listen to that episode if you haven't already. Well, today, I'm applying a similar lens to another dichotomy of our collective cultural consciousness. The love-hate relationship that we have with pretty girls, or conventionally attractive, hyper-feminine girls. At first glance, society's admiration for this sort of beauty seems quite straightforward, yet the surface-level admiration we practice is also intertwined with envy, objectification, and disdain. Why do we love to hate the pretty girls? Why have we for ages demonized femininity, ultra femininity, beauty to some degree? Now, before we dive any deeper into this topic, I have a few disclaimers. When I discuss beauty today, I am primarily referencing conventional Western Eurocentric standards of beauty, which is by no means all-encompassing. Beauty is a subjective and complex concept that can be understood and interpreted in various ways, shapes and forms, and there is no singular interpretation of what beauty means because it varies from person to person across different cultures and time periods. Secondly, I'm not making this podcast episode to defend pretty privilege or beautiful people or anything of the sort. I do think that the social benefits of being conventionally attractive more often than not outweigh the drawbacks, and by a long shot, I'm not questioning that. Instead, this episode exists to serve as an exploratory conversation on the very material consequences of media. It's a choice example of how media shapes the way that we think, act, perceive the world around us, and even justify questionable behavior or have different standards for different people because of what we believe to be true as deemed by media. And I hope that we can unpack the assumptions that we might make about others because of some form of internalized misogyny, you know, years of being exposed to these gendered tropes and dig into the media conditioning, personal insecurity and uncomfortable feelings of jealousy, resentment, etc. that are often intertwined with some of the negative reactions that we have towards ultra-feminine, conventionally attractive people. Lastly, I want to preface that I myself am by no means a drop-dead gorgeous supermodel or anything even close to that. I actually used to be the very weird, unattractive girl in middle school, elementary school, who by no means fit the mainstream standards of beauty. Um, But I will say that since then, I have grown up to embody some features that may be perceived as conventionally pretty by the Western gaze. And I'll admit that this podcast episode was in part informed by some personal experiences I had. Very recently, I had a experience in a social situation where certain assumptions about who I was, what my character was, and what my intentions were, were cast upon me in a very negative manner because of my appearances, the way that I present myself. A more feminine, confident, outgoing person. And I just know that in that moment that I was being antagonized <laughs> and having these assumptions cast on to me that if I had been a male, if I didn't look the way that I did and dressed the way that I did, I definitely would not have received the same reaction. But yeah, no tino shade. <laughs> I, I oh my god, oh, I need to stop airing out my dirty laundry <laughs> on my podcast. Okay, awesome. Now that we've covered that, let's dive into it. <laughs> When I was in kindergarten, I remember asking my mom to stop dressing me in pink, that my favorite colors were yellow and blue, definitely not pink, because pink was too girly, because it was cooler for me to be a tomboy. And as I got older, I told her I also wanted to wear more jeans, fewer dresses. In retrospect, it's quite strange and unnerving to think that this color and the style of clothing irritated a six-year-old so much that the thought of being girly and feminine was such an issue to tiny val when i think about it now i feel really sad i feel sad because i know that those opinions that i held about being girly and feminine were the direct consequence of what i'd learn on the disney channel nickelodeon and the movies i watched at the time draped in pink sets with perfectly polished nails and stunning big sunglasses Sharpay Evans and Regina George taught me that the feminine girly girl is a bitch, someone who will destroy whatever is in her way to get what she wants. London Tipton taught me that feminine girly girls were shallow, dense, and dumb. I think to truly understand the implications of the ultra-feminine girly girl trope on media, pop culture, and how it shaped our perspectives. We have to understand the two big waves of feminism. The first wave of feminism, spanning from the late 19th century to the early 20th century, was characterized by a push for legal equality and basic civil rights. Activists like Susan B. Anthony and Elizabeth Cady Stanton advocated for women's right to vote, own property, and engage in legal contracts. The first wave is often remembered for achieving the Nineteenth Amendment in nineteen twenty that granted women the right to vote. While it was groundbreaking, the first wave is actually criticized for the limited scope of women's concerns at that time. Media during the first wave focused on issues primarily relevant to white, middle-class women. The media predominantly reinforced traditional gender roles, limiting portrayals of women's contributions to society. The second wave of feminism emerged in the 1960s and continued into the 1980s. This is the one we really want to hone into for our discussion today. The movement embraced the slogan, the personal is political, emphasizing the interconnectedness of personal experiences and broader societal structures. Key figures of the second wave of feminism include Betty Friedan, Gloria Steinem, and Bell Hooks, The second wave is remembered for its impact on cultural and societal attitudes as it sparked discussions on reproductive rights, workplace discrimination, and gender roles. A big argument that was actually upheld by second wave feminism was that women are far more depressed in a domestic setting and that they need to break out of the traditional family unit if they desired independence and opportunity. In their article on how Hollywood demonizes ultra-femininity, Alice Hankey asserts that the most unthinkable and unexpected side effect of second wave feminism was the separation of femininity from feminism. There were activists during the second wave that denounced stereotypically girly things like makeup, high heels, and revealing clothing because, to them, these things upheld patriarchal ideals. Gendered stereotypes have perpetuated popular culture for decades. The ultra-feminine girly girl trope is one of the most prominent examples of this. So, who is the girly girl? In their research paper, Who is the Girly Girl? Tomboys, Hyperfemininity, and Gender, Samantha Holland and Julie Harpin write, The girly girl is a powerful cultural figure, part of a narrative in which women are sexualized and objectified, but she is also a form of polemic. She is contrived to be a marker of the worst excesses of hegemonic femininity. She is conventionally beautiful, she is materialistic, she is vain, she loves shopping, the color pink, maybe not the brightest and definitely not the kindest. In the aforementioned study, which investigated tomboy and girly girl identities by analyzing narratives and personal histories of 20 adult women in the UK, participants characterized the girly girl as, quote unquote, not only a bad influence and bad example, but also a threat to their own freedom to choose how to do girlhood. The girly girl character was seen by participants almost as a figure of fear. What if they somehow ended up as a girly girl against their will? Participants also notably mentioned the inauthenticity of girly girls when they were asked to describe what a girly girl meant to them. They shared associations with excessive makeup, long hair, extensions, fake nails, And these descriptions also portrayed the girly girl as manipulative, daddy's girl, princess-like, and doll-like, emphasizing certain stereotypes associated with the identity. One participant who self-identified as a tomboy, Judith, said, A girly girl is one who enjoys wasting loads of time shopping for clothes and shoes, who spends hours getting ready for a night out and would prefer to spend money on her hair and makeup than buying food. Another participant, who happened to be a mother, says a girly girl is usually quite good at getting their own way. They are daddy's girls, princesses, and can wind him around their little finger. Gendered characterizations like the girly girl or the tomboy are examples of sociocultural norms created to reinforce hegemonic femininity. They illustrate the idea of a woman being in opposition and competition with each other, which early feminist theory predicted would always ensure that the patriarchy would prevail. These gendered expectations and performances Reinforce the notion of such gender hierarchy, as this hyperfeminine, hegemonic ideal is symbolically more powerful than other transgressive or alternative femininities because she does not challenge the patriarchal status quo. That was a lot. (laughs) And although these ideas of feminism have evolved and progressed over time, and the third wave of feminism has helped us accept the notion that what a woman does with her body is her decision, and is characterized by this effort to reclaim stereotypically girly things like makeup and heels, there are still inherently sexist notions like being not like the other girls, (laughs) and the general idea of a pick-me girl floating around pop culture and social media today. These are tropes that, once again, reinforce and demonize being conventionally attractive, conventionally feminine girls. In this next section of the podcast, I wanted to deep dive into three pervasive myths that are reinforced by Hollywood and popular media's portrayals of women whose appearances lean closer to the girly girl stereotype. Turning ultra feminine, conventionally attractive women into the girls that we love to hate. Images that are incomplete and oftentimes disturbing, Images that have conditioned us to have destructive inner dialogues and make snap judgments about these kinds of people when we see them out and about. The first big myth is that she's an attention whore or a bitch. Movies like Mean Girl, The Duff, and High School Musical have taught us that the conventionally attractive girly girl is a bad person and high maintenance and attention seeking too. Everyone wants to be Regina George, but everyone also fears her. These characters are always portrayed as powerful, but in a catty, abrasive kind of way. In the movie Mean Girls, Katie Heron, who is the lead and protagonist, is the embodiment of the -the not-like-the-other-girls trope that you see floating around TikTok. That is, until she transforms into one of the plastics through a full high school 90s movie-esque makeover, after which she becomes morally evil. A bitch, just like Regina George, who she had originally been trying to deface. And it isn't until she turns her back on the ultra-feminine pink and shiny world of the plastics and returns to her calmer, more low-key roots that she is morally accepted by the audience again. In another popular example, Sharpay Evans of High School Musical, a bubblegum pink coated character needs to be the star of her high school's musical. Not because she is personally passionate about theater, which she clearly is, but because she is a whore for attention. She is, however, deemed unworthy of the lead role and duet with Troy because Gabriella, who does not care about traditionally feminine items, deserves it. Now hear me out. Regina, Katie, and Sharpay are not perfect characters. I am not justifying their toxicity by any means. The point I am trying to make, however, is how quickly we, as audiences, diminish their complexity as characters because of their appearance or choice of wardrobe. In a way where we almost immediately assume something, more negative than not, about a girl if we see her, for example, decked out in pink, nails and hair done, and confidently asserting herself. Note how, in the aforementioned examples, the quote-unquote mean girl characters, marked by their looks and overt femininity, are pitted against the quote-unquote nice girl, who in all instances is decidedly not feminine. The deliberate portrayal of a stereotypically hyper-feminine mean girl juxtaposed against an unfeminine protagonist has persisted in our media for a reason. It's really the same reason why young boys are scolded for playing with dolls and young girls are scolded for playing in the mud. In a patriarchal society, femininity is viewed at best as acute deficiency and at worst as evil. The second big myth perpetuated by the hyper-feminine pretty girl trope is that the pretty girly girl is an active threat and definitely trying to steal your boyfriend. In those very same aforementioned movies, The pretty girly girl is villainized because she is actively after the main character's man. It is a conflict of love interests. Movies like Mean Girl, The Deaf, High School Musical have all portrayed the ultra-feminine Queen Bee character being lioness-like, sharp, and overtly protective of their romantic interest, who also happens to be the romantic interest of our main character and protagonist, who is always portrayed as a shy, lower-key, (laughs) not-like-the-other-girl's-girl. And this love triangle is a tale as old as time. Consider Sharpe, Troy, and Gabriella, Regina Katie, and Aaron Samuels, Madison, Bianca, and Wests. This storyline, where the ultra-feminine antagonist becomes a formidable obstacle in the protagonist's romantic journey, not only reinforces a competitive narrative, but also paints conventionally attractive, ultra-feminine women as manipulative and threatening. I think another layer of this myth that extends beyond such movie tropes is how society often views beauty as a tool for manipulation and suggests that those who possess it are, to some degree, inherently threatening in the context of romantic pursuits, work, and other social situations. The perpetuation of this myth, along with the other ones we will discuss today, leave us with a distorted lens through which we perceive and interact with feminine, oftentimes conventionally attractive individuals in real life, which ultimately contributes to a cycle of judgment and preconceived notions that we unconsciously practice. The third trope on beauty and femininity that I'm raising today is arguably the most overdone of them all that she is not the brightest especially if she's blonde the age-old dumb blonde trope perpetuated by characters such as Karen from Mean Girls, Sure from Clueless, or any supermodel S character in a comedy movie, suggests that blonde girly girls, although beautiful, are inherently less intelligent. These girls are far too caught up in aesthetics and material obsessions to be concerned with academia, politics, public affairs, and the more pressing matters in this world. Published in the Economics Bulletin, a study that analyzed IQ results from a 1980 Armed Forces qualification test actually challenged this notion, finding that women with blonde hair actually had higher IQs than the brunette, redhead, and black-haired participants. The difference in IQ are admittedly small and not technically statistically significant, but the takeaway from the study is a significant jab at the age-old trope. Legally Blonde is such an interesting inversion of this girly girl, dumb blonde trope. The movie's main character, Elle Woods, challenges societal expectations by showcasing the intelligence, determination, and legal prowess of a seemingly stereotypical sorority girl. Although the movie isn't perfect, Legally Blonde was an undeniably powerful narrative of empowerment, stressing the importance of breaking down and challenging the confines of narrow stereotypes, and it had much broader implications for cultural narratives on women reclaiming femininity at the time of its release. The perpetuation of these three myths speaks to how regressive the pretty girly girl is as a trope. In movies, TV, and literature, she is the character that holds other women back. But for most of Western and Eastern history, actually, femininity was actually the default. Consider how nobility and aristocrats normalize girly girls as status symbols for their families, something that seemingly even persists in royal families today. Girls acquired status through performative feminism, which converted into status through marriage. Their only job, essentially, was to be pretty, to be demure, and marry whoever their father deemed appropriate. It was a passive life plan, and having too much individuality was looked down upon. There are two versions of girlhood being carved out by this trope, the girly girls and the pioneering gals, or the version of girlhood we now like to call not like the other girls. (laughs) And while the protagonists' pioneering gals were the ones with gender-defying ambitions, The girly girls are the reason why we, as women, continue to be underestimated. Note how overtly misogynistic this idea is. The closer we align ourselves with masculine characteristics and the further from traditionally feminine, the more respect we will garner. All of this in an effort to seek validation from the male gaze that holds our cultural consciousness. Okay guys, that is my TLDR on the age-old media portrayals and tropes, perception surrounding beauty and femininity, and the increasing need to question and reshape them, which I, I do think Hollywood is being better at nowadays than during the time where a lot of these movies were being filmed and produced. But yeah. In the next chapter, I'll be talking about the implications of these tropes, specifically the internalized misogyny of this whole phenomenon, and how these implications show up negatively in our day-to-day lives. next chapter, I want to discuss how decades of cultural conditioning has caused us to act in certain ways without even realizing it because of how much we've internalized these images and expectations of what it means to be a conventionally attractive girly girl, and more specifically how the intellectual degradation and cultural degradation, villainization of these characters relate to the objectification, career challenges, unwanted attention, and unwarranted jealousy and resentment that women, very real women, face in their day-to-day across various societies. In the context of feminine attractiveness, this internalized misogyny is closely tied to the idea of objectification women may experience, right? Where their social worth is reduced to their looks rather than their intellectual abilities, personality, or other intrinsic qualities. They are perceived as objects of visual pleasure rather than fully realized individuals and human beings. The experiences that we're going to be discussing, discrete examples of objectification, are dehumanizing and frustrating because it strips women of the complexity and humanity that defines personhood. The most common example that I think of when I think of objectification and some of these challenges is workplace and career challenges. Conventionally attractive girly girls are often confronted with challenges related to credibility and advancement in the workplace. Their competence and their skills are overlooked because of their appearance and the snap judgment that colleagues make about them because of their appearances including the assumption that they've achieved this certain level of success from just their looks alone and don't deserve to be where they are because of that. I think there's also this level of unspoken women-on-women hostility that a lot of girls experience in the workplace that I want to acknowledge. I feel like while scrolling TikTok this past month, I've seen several different and separate videos talking about, quote unquote, what it means to enter the workplace as a conventionally attractive woman and dressing demurely to avoid attention and hostility from men and women. There was also this really popular video floating around of a girl saying, quote unquote, no one will ever hate you more than your female manager that's over 40. (laughs) I think the thesis statement of a lot of these videos is that beauty and femininity in the workplace is a double edged sword. You get more attention because of the way you look, but you're also less likely to be taken seriously. I was especially sad when I saw videos made by girls working in male-dominated industries talking about how they needed to dress more conservatively and wear less makeup and be less expressive because they said it was the only way that they could avoid making enemies and really play ball in their workplaces. In those kinds of settings, the first concern that is noted is looking like a conventionally attractive girly girl is putting yourself at risk of retaliation. They talk about how men are visual creatures, that they will be distracted by beauty, femininity, and because of years of cultural conditioning, it's hard for them to comprehend that beauty and intelligence can coexist. You know, it can be intimidating and God forbid you're approached by a senior colleague and you turn them down, they may retaliate against you out of embarrassment, whether upfront about it or not. The second concern flagged by a lot of these videos is that in male-dominated industries in particular, women will feel a natural inclination to compete against each other. And by being showy, you nudge others to perceive you as a threat and they may be unkind to you because of that. I think a different way of looking and interpreting some of these videos floating around about the angry 40-year-old female manager or other female colleagues that are being hostile is that these people are often grappling with their own insecurity or are sick of doing everybody else's job and not getting paid or promoted the way that their male counterpart is. You know, these people, they might not be mad at you because you are a young, pretty female, but rather they are upset about everything else that has held them back. That said, what I think is most important to note about the context of all of these videos is that they operate under a patriarchal status quo. As we mentioned earlier, the idea of women being pitted against each other ensures that the patriarchy prevails. These practices and lines of thought reinforce hegemonic ideas of girlhood. Another less traditionally corporate example of female objectification and internalized misogyny in the workplace that comes to mind is the mistreatment of actress Hedy Lamar, who was celebrated as one of the most beautiful Hollywood actresses of her time. Besides her acting career, Hetty was an inventor, and she played a pivotal role in shaping the technology that now serves as the foundation for today's Wi-Fi and Bluetooth tech. She was also romantically involved with an aviation tycoon, Howard Hughes, and even helped him design a new wing shape for his planes to make them more aerodynamic. So Hetty's intelligence was undeniable, but it coincided with her beauty the recognition of her contributions during her lifetime were extremely limited, partly because the prevailing attitudes of her time underestimated women's contributions to male-dominated fields, and partly because she was remembered first and foremost by her beauty rather than her intellect. Hetty's life story reflects the deep-seated misogyny that often pigeonholes women in their careers, stripping them of their complexity why must girls relinquish traditional femininity and looks looks that they had no say in being born with in order to be taken seriously? The unwarranted jealousy, resentment, and degradation conventionally attractive and feminine girls' experience extends beyond just the workplace, also applying to other social contexts like parties, friendships, etc., For example, these women may also be subject to unwarranted, harmful forms of attention like harassment and stalking. Because these are situations where women are reduced purely to objects of desire, dressing a certain way or looking a certain way, incites the belief that these women invite or deserve such kinds of attention. Like the victim blaming of quote-unquote she was asking for it. God, I can't even say that without getting angry. (laughs) No girl has ever been asked to be harassed, disrespected, or touched in any way. Everyone deserves to feel safe and respected regardless of their appearance and sexuality. I'll say it here. Dude, she is not flirting with you or leading you on. She's just hot and talking. (laughs) And as I mentioned before, dressing a certain way or looking a certain way also incites a certain belief that you are the embodiment of all the characteristics upheld by what Hollywood told us the pretty, attention-seeking, girly, mean girl is, right? Myself and a lot of my girlfriends have experienced instances in social situations where certain negative associations tied to the girly girl tropes we discussed were projected onto us because of the way that we choose to dress the way we looked and from both men and women women also internalize these perceptions you know that's why there is oftentimes women on women hostility in such cases not always but i'm just saying women do participate in that type of behavior and i feel like it hurts even more in instances where those assumptions and unwarranted judgments are being cast by other women A really relevant case study I want to examine here is the social media war that has been waged against American singer Madison Beer, who is a conventionally beautiful and overtly feminine public figure. She has been a polarizing character in the internet's conversation surrounding beauty and has been villainized for her looks. Girls online have blamed her for setting unrealistic standards of beauty and even more seriously accusing her of things like giving them eating disorders. People have also accused her of being a mean girl, attention-seeking, fake. And she's been in the most media controversy for not being truthful about cosmetic procedures allegedly and that's a debate i'm not going to dive into but just because madison is beautiful and overtly feminine why do we feel so compelled to blame her for our own insecurities or cast certain negative ideas about her persona just based off of her appearances i think similar to hedy lamar another thing that madison is primarily praised for in her career is her looks and not necessarily her talent as an artist. I think Megan Fox is another example of an overtly feminine and beautiful public figure who has been diminished to her looks and someone who deserves an apology from the way that she's been positioned in the media and Hollywood. Listen, I'm not saying that these women are perfect because who is, and I'm not saying that they don't have character flaws of their own that need to be addressed, but what I am sure of is that they don't deserve all the shit assumptions that the internet projects onto them based purely off of their appearances. At the heart of this discussion on -on girl-on-girl comparison is the existence of women's self-objectification. In their paper, The Manifestation of Internalized Sexism in the Picnic Girl Trend on TikTok, Rosita Ghazali, Deddy, and Sal Villa share an example TikTok video where two women treat each other as physical and visual objects to reinforce the wrong beauty standard. It's an example of women internalizing the observer's perspective, which impedes their organization and independence. This internalized, objectified viewpoint is operationally defined as a concentration on looks, how well the body or self looks, and whether it is appealing to others. Their paper also discusses how the behavior and attitudes of a pick-me-girl leads to feelings of competition amongst women within the patriarchal society that they're pushing feelings of other women below in order to enjoy the satisfaction that the others are not the same level as themselves and they want to be the standout in the lens of men in a patriarchal system. If there's anything that you guys take away from today's discussion, I want it to be that this, all of this, is not the fault of a single individual, but rather the downstream flow of an inherently flawed, inherently patriarchal system. A system that leads to divisive media perceptions that create strict boundaries of girlhood, pitting women against each other and painting femininity as a deficiency or a weakness. And constant exposure to these media portrayals have conditioned us, the people, to internalize some of these tropes, causing us to think and act in biased ways in our day-to-day without even realizing it. Again, I acknowledge the social capital that comes with being conventionally feminine and conventionally attractive in such a patriarchal society. And I do not mean to diminish that phenomenon because it's real but today's episode was more of an examination on the other edge of that double-edged sword, right? Oh my god, guys, okay. <laughs> this episode was a lot, but I really hope you enjoyed it or learned something today. Again, I am not an expert or a researcher. Instead, I am just a young girl trying to make sense of the details and experiences, and if you did enjoy it, please leave a note in the Q&A box on Spotify. And if you've been and enjoying the one day at a time podcast please leave a review a rating and i will talk to you guys really soon